0: Hello, everyone. This is Nachum Siegel, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests and conversations we've had on JM in the AM. The CEO of the Jewish National Fund, Russell Robinson, was with us recently. He and Naftali Aklum were on to discuss a very important Safer Torah initiative. That conversation is next on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Wednesday morning, it's Chol Hamoed here at JM in the AM. Two very special guests with us live via telephone on this uh, Wednesday Chol HaMoed morning. Russell Robinson is uh, the longtime and very effective, I might add, an amazing leader, Uh, the longtime um, head of the Jewish National Fund. Uh, who, by the way, who, by the way, I have to, I have to give him credit. I'm, I'm, I don't know if he did this because he remembered my uh, insistence eight years ago when we founded the Nahum Siegel Network. Some of you may recall, uh, eight years ago when we founded the Nahum Siegel Network, I said that there's no way I could have the official opening of the network without a tree being planted by JNF in honor of the network. And in fact, the certificate hangs on our wall right here in our main studio in New York City. And then when we, uh, when we, uh, we had heard that the, the topic of this morning's conversation is going to be Torahs, literally, Sifre Torah. We're coming up to Simchas Torah, everybody, this coming Shabbos in Israel, this coming Sunday outside of Israel. Uh, JNF is uh, involved in a Torah project, a multiple Torah project. And sure enough, this week uh, I got a certificate from the Jewish National Fund and their Be Inscribed program with a specific pasuk, a specific verse from Bamidbar. On the certificate, and it says this text has been inscribed in a Torah atop Masada and is now a sacred part of history. And the verse has been inscribed in honor of Nahum Siegel in a Torah, uh, with uh, which, and we'll go into detail about this Torah in a minute, uh, with gratitude, Russell F. Robinson. Uh, Russell Robinson, a pleasure, happy, healthy, and sweet new year, and a pleasure to welcome you back to JM and the AM. Nahum,
1: thank you very much. Happy and sweet, healthy New Year to you and your listeners. Really, it's a a treat, and now the tree is important because uh, the tree not only symbolizes something that was planted in Israel in your honor, and it grows, but it grows the way that your radio station is growing. It, It spreads its wings. It gives out... Uh, um, you know, comfort, and it gives out that information of fall or winter, and that is what you do, and now with the Be Inscribed, we'll talk about it, you get the continuation of Jewish life 2,000 years ago that people thought was over.
0: Appreciate that very much, and uh, having uh, people like you recognize what we do here is much appreciated, and uh, we'll talk more about the, uh, the Torah Project in a moment. I do want to mention that we have another special guest with us live via telephone, and And both you and he will explain why um, uh, his presence this morning is so important. His name is Naftali Aklum. Naftali was born in Ethiopia in 1979, was among the first group of Jews to make Aliyah via the Sudan. He works as an advocate for Ethiopian Israelis, striving to raise awareness about Jewish-Ethiopian history and to strengthen Ethiopian-Israeli identity. He strongly believes that through education and self-confidence, the Ethiopian community throughout Israel will flourish. Naftali uh, discusses... Uh, Ethiopian Jewish history culture and the unique challenges faced by the Ethiopian Jewish community living in Israel. and the Netflix the Netflix presentation, the Red Sea Diving Resort, is based on the true story of his brother Fereda, who championed Ethiopian migration to Israel. And I know a lot of people in this audience saw that uh, movie um, and uh, and uh, it is his brother um, on whom the, uh, the story is based. Uh, Naftali, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Thank you
2: so much, Nachum.
0: Mo'adim uh, to all the listeners. Mo'adim simchach. Hagim lus So We have Russell Robinson, chief executive officer, leader of the JNF. We have Naftali with us live via telephone. And Russell, if you don't mind, I have to start with one question for Naftali. Naftali, I, I had the privilege of having a member of the Ethiopian Jewish community at my Shabbos table, a little while back, before COVID. I've told this story before on the air. Uh, and uh, he was an exchange student from Addis Ababa. He was actually in school here and um, was describing to us how desperately his family is trying to leave Ethiopia and get to Israel. I don't think till this point that has happened yet. But I said to him, what What are you thinking as you sit here among American Jews uh, having described to us what a typical meal is for you in Addis Ababa, and trust me, it's not too extensive, as you, I'm sure, are familiar, uh, what are your feelings as you're going through this uh, you know, I- incredible Shabbat meal with this unbelievable menu and all this luxury? What are your thoughts being in a situation like this? And he said to me, I have one thought, and that is I look around and say, how is it possible that every single person here can live in Israel and they have chosen not to. Naftali, what is your reaction to that story?
2: Well, uh, you know, I would, I would want all the Jews to come and live here in Israel with us, but um, everyone have a mission. Uh, you know, the Jews in America um, have a mission to, uh, uh, to be there and to protect the state of Israel and to help the country uh, from America, and we are here, uh, need to do what we have to do here. So I guess everyone has their own mission. And about the Jews that are still in Ethiopia, I really hope that they will come as soon as possible. I can tell you now that with the uh, new Minister of Immigration, Prina Taman there is a big chance that in the next year, all of them will come to Israel and will make aliyah.
0: A, uh, a, a a really nice, a, a polite answer. I'm going to be a little bit tougher on my community here and be a little bit stronger about the need to get to Israel as soon as possible, but your diplomatic response is much appreciated, and the fact that you've given us a, somewhat of a pass is certainly appreciated. Russell, how is it that JNF, it seems, at least from my vantage point, always forms really solid relationships with immigrant groups to Israel whether it be the former Soviet Union Ethiopia and we'll talk more about the relationship in a moment uh, how is it that this always seems seems to develop that as uh, people from countries around the world gravitate toward Israel and are in tremendous need you know the transition to Israel creates tremendous needs in specific communities how is it that the JNF always seems to be there for them
1: so uh I think that that is a, uh, it's a great question, because it really deals with a statement that we make all the time. Our relationships, our work, our people are not dealing in the hallways of the Knesset, but they're dealing on the streets of Beersheba and Kiryat Shmona, on Akko and Steirot in the Arava. Now, why does that mean anything is that, you know, it is a, a relationship between the diaspora and Israel, a relationship that, let's face it, Nahum, it's, it's a relationship that started when Abraham said, Lech lecha, go forward to a new land. No one else, no other people have a land as part of their existence except the Jewish people. So in that relationship, we can get caught and bogged down into a hallway conversation in the Knesset, or you can get... Really revitalized and 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 passionate when you have a a conversation on the streets of of Steyrot with a Naftali, when you you know meet an Avi, and when you meet a Sarit in Steyrot, and when you get to know these people, and you get to help build a nation still in her creation, you're part of four thousand plus years of Lefahak continuing.
0: No question about it. And it seems like the building doesn't end. Even COVID doesn't uh, allow the building of the Jewish National Fund to end. Uh, You had a goal, a specific goal for your uh, 2020 campaign. Uh, It was in the 90 millions of dollars. It has raised, you just announced, a record high of 100 million. dollars With all the challenges, and you know that one of the benefits of COVID is that, for instance, this audience has grown like crazy. People are gravitating toward anything having to do with community, but the fundraising is not easy. And many organizations would agree with me on that. How is it that JNF has met this challenge at such a difficult time?
1: So I could talk about organizationally. We were set up for this without knowing we were. We were an efficient, effective organization dealing with offices that were dealing remotely anyway. We had central processing areas and people were ready for it when it happened. But it's people like Naftali, our affiliates in Israel, all of our work, we come together under vision. And then we try to, in that vision, figure out what are all the elements that we have to do to produce that objective. And when COVID hit, we started putting all of our affiliates together, so we didn't go into paralysis, nor on the fundraising. Over 10,000 phone calls were made by our volunteers, just wellness calls. We kept Zoom calls. We had some Zoom calls with three and 5,000 people, and if anybody wants to go on jnf daneforg forward slash on demand... We have a continued programs going on every single day. Then we started something, Nakham. We started a virtual mission. It was kind of an experiment with a real guide in Israel waking up sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning, two hours a day, Monday through Friday, and we have 40 200 people who have signed up or or will be going on our virtual missions. And you can come on any of them. And they're wonderful opportunities. But Israel. a hundred times you'll see something you never saw before. So we weren't in paralysis. We got our affiliates working together. And together we did some incredible work in Israel. Having volunteers pick fruit off of crops in the Arava that couldn't go to Europe. Packaging them by our young leaders, people like Naftali. Packaging them and then delivering them to Holocaust survivors and seniors. That is working together. Don't sit in paralysis. Don't go oy vey, Figure out how we make things happen. We have to be the
0: doers. So even if someone announces a $1 billion campaign, and you'll recall... You had an announcement like that just a while back. Uh, one shouldn't think it's unachievable. One should think that now you could be, and you are, over $700 million toward that $1 billion.
1: Not only is it not unachievable, it really deals with the safer Torah we're going to be talking about. Uh, you know, this is, uh, and I'll kind of walk into it a little bit here. We're writing and have a scribe doing Torahs on top of Masada at a place in which 2,000 years ago, scraps of Torah were found from a group of people who thought it was the end of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And now, well, if we think it's the end, maybe. But if we never think it's the end, we keep building. And I still tell people all the time, our Jewish world is greater today than any time. We have a growing Jewish community in America. We have a strength. Our fastest group of our growing donor demographics are 22 to 40-year-olds throughout the United States. We have a high school in Israel that has 110 students from America there now for a semester abroad, and we're sold out for the rest of the year because young people want to connect to this 4,000-year dream of Lech Let us dream... Let us believe and let us do, because that's the world of the Jewish people.
0: Yeah. Look, we know this from your work with our friends at Nefesh B'Nefesh. Nefesh. You take a look at the demographics of the lone soldiers and others, and uh, they're from every kind of Jewish background in the United States. They're from uh, just uh, uh, amazing families that could be of any, uh, uh, of any uh, ritual observance, some from, from no observance whatsoever, but they have this incredible connection to the land. Uh, you mentioned Masada in... Um, uh, Masada is Israel's second most visited tourist destination, over a million people annually. In 2004, the room attached to the synagogue that houses the safer Torahs was completely restored. Known as the Geniza, a Torah was placed in the Ark of the Geniza, making the profound statement that we are backed. The Geniza was reconditioned in 2008 to comfortably house a scribe behind the glass wall, affording all visitors to Masada the opportunity to view him at work. Today, the scribe is creating new Torahs for JNF, and the Be and scribe project in the exact same spot used thousands of of years ago, everybody is invited to participate in the Be Inscribed program. It's literally jnf.org/slash/be-inscribed, jnf.org/be-inscribed, jnf.org, be inscribed, and you have an opportunity to uh, uh, to purchase a, a verse, a letter, a word, whatever it is you'd like, and be part of this project and um, and uh, be uh, and be part of uh, be part of a uh, 2,000 year history uh, atop of uh, of Masada. Uh, Naftali, is your Celebration uh, any different than uh, than other Simchat Torah celebrations that we would be used to?
2: So um, a little bit before that, uh, Ethiopian Jews came to Ethiopia after the destruction of the first temple. Uh, we believe that we are the tribe of Dan. Uh, the Ethiopian Jews never had oral Torah. The only Torah we kept uh, is the written Torah. Right. And the reason is uh, because we were isolated community from the rest of the Jewish world. Uh, Ethiopian Jews did not celebrate Simchat Torah in Ethiopia because it's a holiday from the Oral Torah. But the importance of the Torah to the Ethiopian Jews is simply so great. And uh, the importance of the Torah to the Ethiopian Jews is something that actually allowed this community to maintain its Judaism throughout 2,500 years in exile. The Torah is what kept the community united. The Torah is what kept the longing of Ethiopian Jews for Zion, Jerusalem. And the reason we are in Israel today is because of the Holy Torah. But I would like to, uh, I must mention Russell Robinson and the organization he leads, uh, JNF USA, who for years understands the importance of uh, bringing the story of Ethiopian Jews to the forefront in Israeli society and in the Jewish world in general. About a year and a half ago, the JNF printed and translated the book, The Power of One, a book that gives an overview of the history of the Ethiopian Jews and tells the life story of my pioneering brother in bringing Ethiopian Jews through Sudan to Israel. JNF, listen, uh, Nahum, JNF donated to print and translated 500 books from its original Hebrew into English um, and in addition, Mr. Rice, Mr. Russell decided that this year JNF will put a Torah scroll to the first synagogue of Ethiopian Jews in Israel, which is located in Be'er Sheva. The event was supposed to be a big event, but because of COVID-19, it was a bit postponed. But I'm sure uh, that in the future we will celebrate. We will celebrate it big and this is uh, uh, another opportunity for me to thank Russell personally and to this family called JNF. For me JNF its not organization it's really a family.
0: Uh, I understand that and Russell I guess this was a need uh, of the Ethiopian community that you again responded to.
1: So this is a, a, a great story I think that um, we, every time a Torah is finished, and people could do, uh, like you said, they could scribe a letter, a word, a verse, a paragraph, a, a chapter onto the Torah. And when the Torah is finished, we try to give it to, to one of our donors, usually donates it and then gives it to one of our affiliates. So we have one at our Alexander muss High School in Israel. Uh, we have a Torah at a synagogue in, in, uh, um, on the Gaza envelope okay in a in a synagogue that never was there literally is there today it's 5 yards away from the wall and here's an active synagogue saying to our enemies we are here it really tells the story of of wow that 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 Torah is more than just a Torah. It's a symbol. We are here. 2,000 years ago, you thought we're gone. We're here. The firefighters, there's a donor who gave it to the firefighter, and Naftali called and wanted to donate a Torah to the Ethiopian synagogue in Barishevel, where we work. And he said to me, listen, I'm going to raise some money, and, I'll, and I could do a couple hundred dollars here and a couple hundred dollars there, and I'll send it. And immediately one of our donors heard that uh, they wanted the synagogue and said, you know what? Anonymously, I want that Torah. I want in the name of Naftali's father. I don't know if he knows that right now. And when that Torah is finished, we're going to have the Ethiopian community come up to, to Masada. And we're hopefully we will be there. I'll be there. And we'll dance down that Torah down Masada. We're going to dance that Torah into that Ethiopian synagogue. And just imagine, that's that certificate that is in your room right now. Like the tree certificate that grew, that certificate, your words that keep spreading the word of the Jewish people every single day, that word comes out of a Torah that is sitting on an Ethiopian synagogue, sitting in Israel from a community thousands of years ago, from a Torah that was made from a place that they thought we weren't around thousands of years ago, and has his father's name on it and for the next hundreds and hundreds of years will be celebrated and learned from, and it's an honor for Jewish National Fund to be part of it.
0: Naftali, uh, is this the first time you're aware that this is being done in memory of your father?
1: Well, I
2: knew that uh, Russell and JNF is thinking of uh, putting a Torah in the synagogue here in uh, 'er Beersheba, but yes, the first time uh, knowing for sure that uh, this Torah will be under the name of my father, and uh, if you would see me now, I'm very excited like right? you know it's not only it's not only me and my family, but the whole community here in Beersheva. We have more than ten thousand Ethiopian Jews living in the city of Beersheva, the first city that one of the first cities that received the Ethiopian Jews in the eighties, and to hear news like that that uh, people from our brothers and sisters from America coming and donating a Torah to our synagogue, that's the beauty of being a Jew, of being part of what we call the Jewish people. So once again, Russell, I love you. Uh, I love your family, which is JNF. I don't want to call it organization no more. It's not organization. (laughs) It's one big family that take care of each other.
0: Did your father ever make it to Israel?
2: My father, yes. uh, He he made it to Israel. He lived here 30 years. He passed away 11 years ago. Uh, But, yeah, he, you know, our parents, uh, the old people, for them, the most important thing was to make it to Israel, to fulfill that dream to be in Jerusalem. And uh, I guess he is resting in peace because he, Uh, build a family here, Uh, his son uh, opened the gates for the Ethiopian Jews to come to Israel, another son of him became the first Ethiopian officer in the IDF in 1986, he was a paratrooper, so he's resting in peace, and uh, now uh, the JNF is giving him a special gift, a Torah uh, after his name, so I hope it will will do good for him uh, in heaven.
0: Absolutely amazing. Become a part of history, everybody. Inscribe a letter, word, or portion of the Torah being written on top of Masada. The uh, website's pretty easy. Beinscribed.org. Beinscribed.org for information. Naftali, is there a um, an official or unofficial rabbi who leads the Ethiopian community of Israel?
2: Uh, well, yes, there is official rabbi for the Ethiopian Jews uh, like chief rabbi for the Ethiopian Jews here in Israel. But every city has their own rabbi. So In Beersheba, we have rabbi. In Ashkelon, they have Ethiopian rabbi. Uh, we, Yeah, so we have rabbi in every city, but we have one chief rabbi uh, that controls the whole country.
0: How many Jews right now, in your opinion, how many Jews right now would like to leave Ethiopia and go to Israel?
2: So in Ethiopia, we have still... 7,500 Ethiopian Jews that are waiting in the camps in Gonder and in Addis Ababa. And today in Israel we have 150,000 Ethiopian Jews, which is less than 2% of the population here in Israel. Uh,
0: the, the person I mentioned to you, the student who was at my Shabbos table, actually said to us that his family moved closer to the big city at great peril to the family, uh, only because it would make the process easier to eventually get to Israel. So people are making sacrifices, even while staying in Ethiopia, they're making sacrifices to get to Israel.
2: So I don't know if you're still in contact with that uh, 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 person that visits your house, uh, but you should tell him that the government uh, come to a conclusion and they have a decision that uh, until the end of 2020, another 2,000 will come, and we hope that the other uh, uh, 5,500 will come in 2021.
0: Wow, the 2,000
1: will come until the end of this year.
0: Russell, the work's not letting up. You have a lot of work to do.
1: Well, I have a lot of work to go, and I'm going to give a pitch to everybody. When you come to Israel, when we're able to travel to Israel... I don't want you to talk about Ethiopian food as bad. Yuko and uh, Tali <laughs> will give his uh, email address as well. He runs a program in Beersheba where you can come into the homes, have home cooking, come into the synagogue. It's a uh, really exquisite experience. You'll see the synagogue, the, the Torah, in which you have a be inscribed uh, uh, a part of. Uh, uh Nahum, and you can and or have uh, home hospitality in if he opens homes and you could you you can have Naftali as your brother because he's my brother, but everybody else you can.
0: Amazing. Uh the website is Mazal tov to those who are going to benefit uh from this stay for project from the JNF. Uh this coming Sunday outside of Israel is Simchat Torah. Inside Israel it's this coming Shabbat. And, uh, Naftali, I just want you to know, you know, I, I mentioned before I asked you about the differences between the, uh, you know, Simchat Torah, and you had, you had mentioned uh, why it was not uh, observed in your community. But one thing I will tell you, in, back in 2014, we, as part of our Jewish Unity Initiative, we were in Steyroth uh, to um, donate a Sefer Torah to the Ethiopian Shul in Steyrot. It was something done here by the uh, Jacob and Rosazada families and uh, and we were honestly honestly, you know what a Hachnasat Sefer Torah is like, you know what a celebration, Russell described yeah, yeah, it before, course, so of honestly of we, we were on our way to Stay Road and we were saying to ourselves, and we were bringing the musician, so we were saying to ourselves oh no, you know, maybe the, the songs are probably very different, a different liturgy, a different tradition, you know what, what do they sing in the Ethiopian community when it comes to Hachnasat Sefer Torah, are we going to be able to fit in, is it going to be awkward, and sure enough the celebration started, and the community sang the exact same songs that we sing when we are celebrating a Hachnasat Sefer Torah. Uh, I thought that was significant because the more we learn how different we are, the more we learn how Baruch Hashem, how much uh, more we have in common. And I think that's a really important thing, especially now during this holiday of Sukkot as we talk about the yes. uh, coming together of all the Arba minim and what they symbolize, I think it's really important to remember that everybody we discussed in this conversation, in fact, are our brothers and sisters.
2: True, true. And uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, today in Israel, of course, the Ethiopian Jews do celebrate Tibchot Torah. Right. And in the synagogue uh, here in Be'er sheva uh, every year there is a big celebration. We're taking out the, the Torah out to the street. We're dancing Ethiopian music, uh, Hebrew music, Hasidim music. Uh, unfortunately, this year uh, we are in lockdown, so I don't think we will be able to celebrate the way we want to celebrate. But um, but it, 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 it's something to see. It's something to see. Uh, and I hope that next year uh, your listeners will be able to come and if they will be in, uh, in Beresheva, they are more than welcome uh, to visit the synagogue. If they want more info about my project, they can log on to jewsofethiopia.com, and they will have all the info over there.
0: I can't wait to meet you. Naftali Aklum. those of you who've seen the, uh, the movie The Red Sea Diving Resort that was on Netflix, it's based on a true story of Naftali's brother, so that gives you some context. And he was born back in 1979 and was among the first group of Jews to make Aliyah from Ethiopia. Um, uh, go to the website, beinscribe.org for information about the Safer Torah Project that we described here this morning at JMN. With Simchas Torah right around the corner, you may want to consider being a uh, uh, a partner in the efforts of JNF. And the chief executive officer, of course, of JNF is Russell Robinson. Russell, to Darabat you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
1: Thank you so much, because you are, again, you're the inspiration of in, in, in words and action to our people, and I can't uh, really, I, I, I'm not saying it because I'm talking to you on the phone or on the radio here, I'm telling you that when you're able to get people like you, who are going to tell our great stories about how great we are as Jewish people, that the greatest moment of Jewish life is today. An Ethiopian Jew talking to you from Beersheba about a synagogue, uh, a Jew from New York, a Jew from New York in Texas originally, and, and we're bringing the conversation all into one, that the next thousand years of the Jewish people are some of the greatest, and we just have to seize the moment. Take down the walls and start a conversation, and it will be the greatest conversation our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, children yet unborn will be part
0: of. You know, Russell, I, before I let you go, uh, COVID notwithstanding, uh, the point you're making is so important for people to remember, and it's something that maybe people should mention at the Yuntiff table this coming Friday night to their children and grandchildren. Uh, anybody, anybody. Uh, and I think I could say this with great confidence, although I'm sure someone will argue with me, anybody in Jewish history of the last one to 2,000 years would give anything to be part of this generation, part of this incredible celebration of life, of Torah, and the, and the world Jewish situation you just described uh, during now, uh, the year 2020. And I think it's really important to remember the privilege we have uh, to be involved at a time like this in history, so I'm glad you pointed that out. Russell, happy, healthy, and sweet New Year. Chag Sameach. Thank you so much. We will be in touch. Chag
1: Sameach. Thank you. Naftali, my brother, my love to my family.
0: Naftali, kol to you. Toda Rabba. and Chag Sameach and Shana Tova.
1: Shana Tova.
2: Chag Sameach. I have a good friend, the Or Sinai, uh, running Alexander uh, Mas High School in Israel. Is always finishing uh, with the saying, Am Yisrael Chai.
0: Am Yisrael Chai is ah, right. Thank you. Tadaraba. Wednesday morning, kolamoy. This is JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Russell Robinson and Naftali Aklum. Next up, Professor Yonatan Alevi. He is the president of the Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem. We had a chance to catch up and discuss what's happening regarding coronavirus in Israel and the world. That conversation next on JM Rewind on the Nachum Segal Network. Well, I was right. Professor Alevi was dealing with the situation, but now Baruch Hashem he has time for us. Uh, Professor Yonatan Alevi, Israeli uh, public health care expert, a physician, served as director general of Jerusalem Shari Tzedek Medical Center until 2019, and now is the president of Shari Tzedek Medical Center, one of our favorite guests here at JM and the AM. Uh, Professor Alevi, Shanatova Gemar Tov, and welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank
3: you, and Shanatova and Gemar Tov.
0: Uh, Great to speak with you. Uh, Before we talk about the hospitals, and obviously we're very concerned about our brothers and sisters in Israel, obviously you know that, but let's just talk more generally about what's going on from your vantage point and from your neighbors' and friends' vantage point regarding the lockdown. We're told that the lockdown in Israel is essentially going to go until Shemini Atzeret Simchat Torah, which is October the 10th. Uh, Is that in fact what's happening? Is everyone basically in place now through the entire holiday
3: uh... well yes the lockdown is uh, definitely in effect i must say that when i compare it to the lockdown during the first wave of covid-19 uh, you see uh, many more cars um, in the streets and uh, many more working places that are open but uh... basically uh, it's it's a lockdown. Yeah. There are uh, roadblocks by the police and uh, heavy fines if you have no uh, good excuse uh, to be in the street. And uh, what's more, uh, Bibi Netanyahu announced yesterday that he doesn't think it's going to last only until Motza'im Simchat Torah, mm-hmm. but probably a, at least a month from now. So the situation in Israel is really not. I'm basically an optimistic in nature. And I never got such a slap in my face, uh, to my optimism because I, I did not predict that, uh, the second wave will surpass the first wave. And you will probably ask me in a few minutes about the situation in the hospital and its economy. So just to sum it up, yes, there is a lockdown. It is not, uh, felt so much in the streets, but the uh, schools are closed, uh, and, um, uh, people are, uh, are less in the streets, although working places are functioning.
0: Professor Jonathan Alevi with us. Were you able to be in the Beit HaKnesset on Yom HaKippurim, and will you be able to be in one on Sukkot?
3: Well, I'm reading uh, Kohelet in uh, this Sukkot, in Chobet in Jerusalem, but in an outdoor shul. As far as Rosh Hashanah goes, maybe you will be surprised but I spent a week in your country, in the U.S., wow. uh, before, before Rosh Hashanah, of course, representing the hospital. It was uh, a fundraising trip. Uh, we have a uh, few donors uh, that uh, COVID-19 led them uh, to reassess their priorities, and they elevated charity in their priorities. We told you subjectivity. I believe that they justified this hope. And uh, I came back erev erev Rosh Hashanah, so I went into isolation
0: or quarantine. Right, understood. Wow, unbelievable. Kol hakavod to both you and those who are making Shari Tzedek a priority. When we spoke, we spoke with you obviously, you know, in, in, you know, in previous conversations during COVID-19. We also spoke with one of the nurses in Shari Tzedek Medical Center's COVID-19 unit at that time. And remember, Israel was in a relatively better situation than most of the free world during the initial stages of COVID-19 yet the hospital did face a pretty big challenge. There were, the nurse did describe to us that, you know, the unit was full and always active and ambulances showing up, et cetera. What is the condition now in the hospital? We know the numbers in Israel that they're unfortunately so high, but is that emergency situation and full situation being felt in a hospital like Shari Tsenek?
3: Um, Well, I will not call it an emergency situation, because as opposed to the first wave, we go on with our outpatient clinics, with all the ambulatory activity, with all the non-urgent surgeries. So the hospital is full with non-COVID-19 patients. Mm. But the situation with the COVID-19 patients is uh, quite um, worrisome, I would say. Uh, We have this morning 71. If you remember at the peak of the first wave, RF Pesach, we had 120. Uh, So we have 71, but we are opening these hours. We are opening a third COVID-19 department in order to increase our capacity to uh, 120 because the numbers are increasing. The age of the patient is younger which uh, makes it, on the one hand, maybe less dangerous, but we still have uh, seven patients on respirators, uh, two patients on ECMO. ECMO stands for uh, extra membrane oxygenation. It's a kind of a heart-lung machine that you recruit when uh, the lungs really reach um, such a, a, a situation that uh, there, there is no reservoir of the lungs at all, and you need a replacement for the lungs. Right. We had few patients who uh, survived the neck and recovered, but unfortunately, that's the exception to the rule. So we see more severe patients at a younger age. The explanation for the younger age is that we learned during the first wave to defend very effectively our very elderly mainly those in nursing homes today are being isolated, tested very, very frequently, and if one of them is positive, is immediately isolated. So you see less elderly in the hospitals. But the disease became so prevalent with few cities where out of thousands of tests that are done daily, 30% come positive. That's the situation in Breivarach. That's the situation in Elad. That's the situation in Me'asharim in Jerusalem. What What about what host- about
0: what about your colleagues in Beersheba and Haifa? Are they also in the same type of situation or not? Uh,
3: Rambam in Haifa. Yes, they just opened an underground hospital to expand their capacity. Although the prevalence of the disease in Haifa and Beersheba is less than in Yerushalayim, but also the medical services. And the acute care facilities in the periphery are uh, smaller. Usually, Rambam is about the size of Sharatelek, but that's the only major, really tertiary care center in all the north of Israel. So it's no wonder that they are full. In uh, Soroka, in Beersheba, the situation is much better. So much so that uh, patients who are transferable are transferred to Soroka Hospital in Beersheba. From other hospitals
0: that are full in Israel, Professor Jonathan Alevi is with us. Um, one of the things we're being told here by certain leaders and certain uh, members of government is that one of the advantages we have in the month of September and October over, you know, Pesach time is that we have much more effective therapeutics. That therapeutically, medically, uh, in terms of pharmacologically. We know how to deal with this much better. Would you agree with that, that in terms of how doctors can treat someone who tests positive for COVID and is suffering from bad symptoms, we're way ahead of where we were months ago?
3: I partially agree, because these are not revolutionary modalities. Yes, we have the dexamethasone, the steroids, that we learn only after the first wave. We learned that should be started for every patient for five days, when they get to be in an intermediate situation before they deteriorate. We have the famous Remdesivir, right. manufactured by Gilad, an American company, that we also give to every patient who is showing the first sign of entering a severe situation with his or her, COVID-19. And these two medications probably shorten the time, so there is the situation called the hospital shorten the length of hospital stay where they are successful. There is no unequivocal proof that uh, they really uh, reduce um, a mortality. Uh, so it's only partial success, but uh, there is circumstantial evidence that they are effective. Uh, another thing that we learned after the first wave is to try and avoid artificial respiration. So right. we are using, ever, and maybe this is even more effective than, uh, than than the two medications that I mentioned that are the only medications that are partially effective for COVID-19, the dexamethasone, the steroid, and the remdesivir. Uh, nothing else, no hydroxychloroquine that we threw away long ago, right. and not uh, any other modality. But we learn to try and delay as much as possible putting the patient on, on a ventilator. And uh, we are using all kinds of modalities to give them oxygen support, uh, sometimes under pressure. There is a, a simple machine called OptiFlow where you can really optimize oxygen flow uh, under pressure without doing invasive, ventila- invasive ventilation. And I think that this lesson learned from the first wave of patients uh, really um, improves the situation, not only the burden uh, on hospitals, but it seems that the patients are doing better.
0: Uh, Professor Jonathan Alevi is with us at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at and, and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course the beloved NSN app. Uh, you mentioned the slap in the face that this second wave has been Uh, And how it may have affected your general positive outlook. So now I'm very curious about whether you still have a positive outlook. When it comes to a vaccine, we we are being told, and again, there's an election year. We know there's politics involved in statements being made by both sides, uh, but we're being told that we're close to a vaccine. If it does happen, it'll be a record pace. I'm sure you have followed the development of vaccines for certain things over the years, and this would be a record pace. Even if it came out, you know, a few months from now, it would still be uh, from what we're told. As you know, as a layman who reads this stuff, you know, would be record pace. Is it? Is it still? Uh, Do you still have a positive outlook and feeling that we will, in fact, have this vaccine, an effective one, very soon? And by very, I mean like in the next half a year?
3: Well, in general, my outlook is positive for that. I don't believe there will be a vaccine before November 3rd. (laughs) although you were ordered by your president to develop it before November 3rd, if I'm not mistaken. I'm saying it uh, half-jokingly. But I believe following um, at least the two leading companies, uh, Moderna that uh, cooperate with uh, Bayer and Oxford in England that cooperates with AstraZeneca, and uh, following their publications and the scientific publications on uh, on the phase three uh, trials that they are doing now, I'm quite optimistic. I think that uh, you mentioned half a year. Right. I believe that six months um, gives uh, a good chance. Uh, if really, I mean, the last publication was that after 27,000 uh, patients who got it from all ages and with all background diseases, though this was a publication by Moderna, there was no uh, significant side effect except this uh, one case that was examined and re-examined, and uh, the fact that they continued, there, at least in Europe, that they continued the trials shows that uh, they are not panicked from this single case. But one has to remember, history of medicine is full with examples where medications that pass Phase one on few tens of patients, phase two on few hundreds, and phase three on tens of thousands. The post-marketing surveillance, after marketing the medication or the vaccine and being given to millions of people, uh, we did see severe side effects. And vaccines are especially dangerous. So you are right. If we will have an effective vaccine uh, manufactured in mass production within six months, It will be a record, and we have really to hope that the post-marketing surveillance will not um, show us a few serious side effects. But I think that's the only chance we have to eradicate this uh, epidemic, this pandemic.
0: Uh, Will we sit down to the Pesach Seder, having had a vaccine or not? The, The other method or the other route... Uh, and I read about this. I read that there are Israeli mach- Israeli-made machines that are now being used in certain airports and maybe other facilities that are that are a rapid rapid test. Meaning you could literally walk in uh, to a facility, an office building, for instance. And however they do it, be tested within seconds or minutes. I wouldn't know the details. You would, of course. Um, and I think it's already being used in certain European airports. Is that is that possibly the direction we're going in, that, that the vaccine may not be ready, but Israeli technology and other technology around the world might be able to give us a situation where every restaurant, or, you know, again, a reasonable number of them, where every restaurant and office building and school and other facilities we want to open could, could literally... Uh, you know, gauge who can come into this building and who can't and and would that be a method of getting back to a normal life?
3: Well, you are really updated. I believe this is a direction. It's not a, a substitute for vaccines. I will explain in a minute why not, but that's the direction. I don't think uh, only in Israel we are, as far as I know, it's not out of the experimental phase, so I'm unaware if it is uh uh, in operation in few European airports, definitely not in Bengal. It's on a trial basis. I think the Australians are developing a similar technology, and yes, we can have the result uh, within minutes. I believe this will be long before the vaccine, maybe in a weeks' time. Why is it not a substitute for vaccine? Because when a patient contracts COVID-19 during the first hours, for sure but also during the first days, the chance for a false positive result is very high, for a false negative result is very high. Mm. In other words, you will not be sure that uh, the patient is not uh, harboring the virus and it's still not manifested in this test. So (sighs) it's not equivalent to eradication of the virus, but it's a huge, huge step forward in isolating the positive patients and in protecting the public,
0: no matter what route I take or discuss, it all comes back to Avinu Shemayim. Whatever he wants, <laughs> whatever he wants, that's, <laughs> he wants, that's, that's what's going to happen. For sure, that's <laughs> <for> sure. <laughs> I'll tell you, and who would know that better than you? Because you have said many times that you have felt the spirit of the One Above when you're trying to help a patient, uh, and we know who the ultimate healer is. The ultimate healer is, is of course, the One Above, as we've said. Uh, So many times. I
3: fully agree, and I will be the first to agree.
0: (laughs) Especially during this holiday season, we emphasize it so many times. Uh, Dr. Alevi, best regards to our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land. It's hard to believe how long it's been since we you've been here in the United States. We have not been to Israel since January, which is difficult for us to believe. But I, we're, we're hoping that this lockdown and all the precautions that are being taken will finally, finally stem the tide. I mean, I, I guess you are at this point warning people, hey, we're just starting October now. As we get into the winter months, potentially this could be even worse, right?
3: It can, but uh, I believe that the social distancing uh, will, and that's what happened in Australia during their winter. I hope social distancing will make the flu epidemic mild uh, this uh, this year. But again, I ask myself, myself, if it's not my general positive outlook. Right. But at least there is a scientific basis to assume. That if people keep social distancing and social distancing is well kept in Israel now, even among the Haredi community, uh, as a a general rule. So I believe the flu epidemic will not be severe this year. And uh, let's hope that the vaccines, it varies from year to year. There are years where the flu vaccine is 25% effective. There are years when it is 75% effective. It depends if the producers really and the scientists predict what serotypes of the flu uh, virus will prevail this year. So let's hope the vaccines will be uh, effective. Let's hope that a large segment of the population will be vaccinated this year, and I believe it will be so because of what we went through in the last six or seven months. And um, let's hope that the epidemic will be mild, Uh, so uh, the uh, winter uh, will not... Aggravate the situation.
0: And if flu numbers stay down, automatically COVID numbers stay down or not necessarily?
3: Not necessarily. No, these are two different viruses and they behave completely differently.
0: So you're just saying that if flu numbers stay down, in general, the, the health of the country, will, 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 will it, it'll help stem the tide of more and more people getting sick. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Todarabat to you, shanatovat to you, and continue.
3: Shanatova machati, Tova, to all your listeners, and uh, let's hope we'll meet soon in Israel and refuah shlema, lechol bet Israel ve'la olam kulo.
0: Amen. Todarabat, Professor Yonatan Levi, President, Charit Tzedek Medical Center. Always a wonderful perspective, even during difficult times like this. Eight minutes after eight o'clock. More coming up. You're listening to a Wednesday morning broadcast of JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Professor Jonathan Halevi. Thanks so much for tuning in. JM Rewind every single week gives us a chance to check out some of the recent guests and conversations we've had on JM and the AM. Plenty more great programming coming up. Keep it right here at the Nolcum Segal Network.